You've been writing poetry again. I can spot that leaky pen on your lip from miles away and your tongue with the stale taste of metaphor still on which you've tried to brush away. The verses linger still in your kiss. You've been writing poetry again. Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until february 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy, Volume 7, Tragic Poetry. One of the things that stand-up tragedy has discovered we are about is about finding really excellent spoken word artists and getting them to come up on our stage and do all their most sad and bleak material. And that can be an experience that can weirdly not just be sad, but also really powerful and optimistic and and all of the things that we think are the opposite of tragedy. But that's not really what tragedy is. Tragedy does contain, I think, all emotions. If you look at tragedies, tragic plays from the Greeks to Shakespeare to Arthur Miller through modern day tragic plays. You will have all of the emotions in there because in order for you to feel really truly sad, you have to feel truly happy. You have to have the hope. You have to think that they're going to make it. They might make it. And then when they don't, it's more sad. But also you have to feel the real sadness in order to feel truly happy, I think, as well. Because for you to really appreciate happiness and positivity and, and, and stuff like that, you have to have a, a contrast to, to compare it against. And that's what today's episode is really about, about those contrasts, about people finding beautiful words to say sad things and finding sad words to say happy things and everything that's in between. So the content note for today's episode really is poetry. Expect poetry. I mean, that poetry will touch on sad subjects for sure. It will touch on death and homelessness and violence and class and race issues using words as tools and weapons and as analytical devices and as ways of taking their emotions and sharing them with the audience. It features some of my favourite poets that we've had on stage but by no means all of my favourite poets that we've had on stage and really this is there to provide you with around about an hour and a half of delicious, delightful words and voices so that's what you're going to hear today there won't be very much editorializing from me this is about it apart from i'll be popping in 
between poets in order to say who the next poet is. Today is going to be a journey through words. So relax, sit back and prepare yourself for the tragedy. So first up we have Adele Hampton. This is the first of two performances from Adele that you're going to hear in today's episode. She joined us for this first one for the first time that we'd ever seen her on stage. You can find her on Twitter at Adele Hampton. That's the best place to keep up with her words. I think that's kind of tragic in the United States um, is how we think of race. And especially when that comes to people who are more than one race, um, which kind of makes us all three-headed monsters um, in the eyes of middle school and high school friends. Um, But yeah, here's a poem about that. When I was little, I used to think that I was stuck in a dream and that I'd wake up as a white girl. And I was dancing in a kitchen that was big enough to hold two steps and swinging hips. When I was little, my mother warned me that my life as a mixed girl would be a hard kind of shuffle, with one heel on the edge of grandma's prim lawns and blue houses the other on daddy's street corners where glass blankets the bottom of playground slides. And I know that it's no one's fault that I often think of this skin, more costume than home, constantly straddling minstrel show and white picket fence perfection for some. The definition of trauma is being forced to ignore the casualties of life's havoc to live in a constant and deafening silence as we choke back the struggle some days. The only thing I can do is picture myself skinny, with blue eyes like my grandmother, with perfectly brown, tousled hair that lets everyone know that I'm super gay and super confident and fit into this community, but I'm not. I was raised to be a graceful child told to strike down my vulnerable because no one ever wants to talk about how difficult it is to be different, suburban bred. I was raised white with the siren snared in the back of my mouth like the lump in my throat were the words, I need help. I kept choking on myself constantly, tying my tongue around the bedpost silently, blood binding the monsters of my two halves. Solitude and the faces I wish looked back at me in the mirror one day. Thought I could teach my veins how to breathe in the air of my childhood bathroom all the while thinking how fucking pathetic it was to be afraid to erase my own skin, to sever the very thing my ancestors have marched into permanence. But what's your response when you're not really black is laughed in your face by chosen family when you're forced to go to the mall just to sit in stores that never fit because your breasts and your backbone were too broad for Victoria's Secret. What's your response? When your skin is too light not to be afraid of black hands running through your hair in the locker room after gym class. So, you mixed or something. High school can be a trap for an already stretched identity. It's funny how I've always come undone when trying to defend myself, trying to present these brown swatches as proof of history, but quick comebacks never come out quick enough because I never thought anyone would accept my naked, my voice, has become a violent, silent sap covering up the hurt I've harbored for years of not being able to erase my own skin some days. I think the bravest thing a person can do is speak their own melanin into a mirror. I am the clatter 
a brown daughter to a white mother, and I'm still trying to find the perfect kitchen to dance in, and I hope to God there is more in me than a wanting to be somebody else. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so my last piece, um, I guess, uh, is also tragic. This is like a really cool night because we don't ever like explore what tragedy is um, in the States. We're all just like, here's all our feelings. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah. His name is Walter. He sits on a trash can outside the corner of Starbucks across the street from my office. When it rains, he wears a tattered black coat and uses newspapers wrapped in plastic as a seat cushion he has slouched. With yellow teeth set intervaled in brown gums, hospital bracelets, bracelets accent his rugged shoes. He is one frayed familiar face amongst the suits, rubbed out graffiti on a K Street sidewalk. Sometimes only the broken stop to appreciate. Walter coos, but he never really cat calls. Instead, he asks about my weekend or why I wasn't there one morning, wishes me a good day, and then turns away. I've given him six packets of Splenda, three stirring straws, and have started to worry when he's not there. My mother says there are reasons why men like Walter aren't allowed in Starbucks, why some women shake hungry cups at businessmen, and why some children's lips don't turn upright. I want to tell her she is right. There are reasons why some people are torn, but she can be wrong in her assumptions about where their rags come from. See, my mother is privileged. Maybe one day she would have stopped to ask why Walter was in the hospital last Tuesday, but now she mourns me about men with threadbare shoes. Homelessness never sounded so refined until I got to college. Cultural and social effects of colonization and racism and cultural and social effects of the African diaspora. I sank my teeth in the meat of my people's problems from my classroom seat, never once giving heart to the issue that holds out empty hands because no, that's too tough of a subject. Tell me, teacher, why some people are more vulnerable to certain illnesses cannot get access to good medical care and are caught in a corkscrew of disadvantage and poor health. Tell me, professor, why I can't write a poem about struggle without feeling like I've done my people a disservice, these words. Tighten rope around my wrists and walk my feet up to the guillotine because I'm scared shitless to confess how I'm choking on this silver spoon suspended in my throat. I've got a childhood of horseback riding lessons, family trips to Europe, and a grand piano in my back pocket, and it takes all the strength I have not to hold out shaking palms and say, Walter, I wish I knew your last name. One day, on our way home from the doctor's office, my little sister asked me if we were spoiled. I told her no, because we were raised to appreciate what we had. I told her no, because our father knows what it's like to not know where his next meal is gonna come from. I told her no, because we knew better, but I didn't know better enough to pull the truth from my cuffs and say, little sister, we are privileged. Our kitchen drawers are full of silverware. We cannot ignore the house we grew up in, but little sister, no, that spoiled is not a replacement word for rotten. No, you have the ability to see beyond class, onto street corners and sidewalks. You know, look down on souls, little sister, instead. Meet eyes with smiles and thank their owners for their holy teeth. Walter sits on a trash can outside the corner Starbucks across the street from my office. He is one frayed familiar face amongst the suits and you don't have to be broken to stop and say good morning. Thank you guys.
No, Antrim. Well, that's the first time we've had her here at Stand Up Tragedy, and she has uh, amazed me today. So I can only hope that she'll come back again. Next up, we have a series of poems from Lee Nelson, who runs Utter Luton. So type that into a search engine and find out what's going on with Utter Luton. Lee is performing a series of poems that he did at Tragic Heroes, which are about his father. Okay, I searched for the hero in, inside myself and, and until I found uh, the key to my life, as I believe Heather Small did a number of years ago, two Olympics ago at least. Um, and it turned out that the key to my life wasn't me, it was other, other people. So, uh, so this is for them. It was about this time, 22 years ago, your mother still spoke to you as though you were a child. Your granddad's not doing very well. That one word in the present continuous provides the context, implies the previous decades, which is off the video, activates the memory. That time in Bournemouth, the only one of those summer family fortnights that you remember, the one seven-year-old fit of laughter that just won't stop laughing until you were sick, laughing some more, because of him. Laughter followed him like his lap-addicted dog. You remember the last Christmas before the illness when he uh, took four cousins to the brink of suffocation, leaving no room to breathe between cackles. He was there on the floor, one of you, more excited about Scalectrics than you were, changing the rules of the games. Always living, he played and sang as and when he wanted, and his rare spirit, untamed by his work, was the heating in his house. If you wanted to share the warmth, just cast off your cardie and clap along. You were about ten when you were told to let Grandad sit. He never sat when you went round on a Sunday. He had jobs to do. He was a car, a horse, a spaceship, and he wrote the jokes you told in the playground on Monday. No, let him sit. He's been to the doctors. Is he hurt? No, he just needs to sit. And he didn't want to, and he made that clear, but he, but he didn't not sit. And what's the point, he thought, of Buck Rogers without the action? He'd been to the doctors with chest pain and shortness of breath and the doctor told him to give up the rollies just like that, so he did. In one day, it's willpower. They all said it was. Now, just, just love. See that from here, looking back. He loved that life and wanted it to go on for as long as it's possible. Or, or actually, maybe fear, too. But he gave up really quick, just like that, in one day. It's willpower. Why? You asked. Too late. Emphysema had him. No more holidays, he couldn't stay in the car that long. No more car, he could no longer drive, no work, no play, no singing, no dancing, couldn't even wash up. You saw him do it. From here, you can see that. You saw him. You watched him sit down inside his body and switch off. He gave up really quick, just like that, in one day. His body had betrayed him, and why would he look after a quizzling? Lack of oxygen robbed him of his voice, then memory... Strokes rampaged through the unoccupied rooms of his flesh. He curled up under the stairs, hugging tight the knees of his soul. Your granddad's not doing very well. You should go and see him. You hated the home, but everyone was going. Your family sat round the bed. The bed held a skinny white piss take of his nut brownness. The eyes still steely blue, no longer ultramarine. The cheeks met between bald gums. And everyone had a go. You sat on the bed, held the cold hand, hugged the tense neck, kissed the flaccid face, remembered, sniffed. Wondered if all the times you told God that you hated him was why he kept your granddad alive. 
This time, 20 years ago, you were visiting, hungry. Your mother spoke to you as though she were a child delivering a message. Go around and see your nan. The telly got very loud. The old cat stretched on your lap. A tight smile, a tear. What are you meant to do? Okay, so that's the first piece. Okay. So that's the death of, of my grandfather there, uh, gorgeously explored by me. Um, <laughs> and subsequent to that, I'm going to explore my own. I did a thing where someone said, imagine the death that you would like to have. So here we go. This is called Quotidian, which is a dreadful pun, and if anyone's tossy enough to get it, you can finish my pint. <laughs> what a gift. There's nothing here, but it's light, white and spacious, the sort of place where falling over looks like it might be easy, but it turns out to be impossible. Go on, try it, you can't. Flatlessness and quiet, but not silent, comfortable. And I'm waiting, no, I'm not really bothered. In the pale, things fade in, like the fog is receding, or from the left, like a Quantel paint box wipe on swap shop, if you're old enough. And that's appropriate for the next figure that fades in. Next, first, not sure, doesn't matter. Far away off and ambling across, confident and calm. He's got the walk of an athlete. The shoulders follow the swing of the legs, and he's diffident, he's, he's embarrassed, but there's, but there's some, something. His smile shows it, he's sort of shy. He's tall, brown-skinned, and his hair is... I remember him. I know him. Throwing a discus on the back of my Eagle comic in 1982, two years before his LA triumph in UK regulation, white singlet and shorts, with the red, white and blue ribbons either side of the number on his chest, in his pomp, at his peak, the supreme athlete, and he's British. Death has manifested in the form of Daley Thompson. He knows I've recognised him, and so he finally looks up and he gives me that whopping grin that you remember. And he can't believe he got this job, no matter how many times he does this, no matter whom for. He loves it. He's so powerfully pleased to be doing this. If you had any doubts about this, about, about any of it, about him, that bright, blithe beam would beam them all away. But there's a little shrug as I, as I stare a little, and the grin goes wonky. He, he is embarrassed. <laughs> but only because he knows he's showing his feelings so openly and purely and he's a sportsman so I look right in his eyes and I return the grin best as I can no need to worry daily I'm up for this too I reckon it's going to be brilliant and I remember you I trust you I might have gone in for sports if a few more of them had been like you so let's do it are you ready? I've been in training for a while well there's the blocks and there's the course Will it hurt? Only until you break through and then you won't want to stop ever. Even if you could, you wouldn't. So I just run in a straight line. As fast as I can. As fast as you can. You can't fall over. I know that. He claps me on the shoulder and he turns to walk away. <laughs> Ready, set, go. In your own time. A grin over the shoulder and he turns away again and I watch him for a bit. See him stretch a hamstring. Bounce on his toes. He's eager, and, and, and there was envy in that shrug. I turn my face to the front. 
I start to run. I can run so very fast now and I can't fall over and my hair whips back and tickles my neck and I haven't had long hair for... And that's that. Okay. Now, we had somebody earlier tributing their father and so I'm, I'm going to rip her off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Final piece. This was a commission, would you believe, by a huge ginger bloke that some of you might be aware of. Um, and he commissioned poems about prime numbers. Now, as you may or may not be aware, a prime number is a number that is divisible only by itself and, and by one. And at the time... Well, anyway, it's all in here. It's all in here. Are you ready? It's called 97. This one's called 97, well, just because it had to be a poem seeking truth, seeking essence, seeking quiddity, a simple rooted thing possessed of indivisibility made only of itself and one who's no longer here with me. It's in the 97 times that he showed me he was pleased with me, my efforts met the standards that he set for me instinctively, a grin would split that face, it beamed out solidly, paternally, brought beneficences rare and fine, both psychic and fiduciary. Or the 97 times we fell out socio-politically, positions at the outset were opposed diametrically, then as the thing progressed, well, he would shift his viewpoint gradually till he's poking you with the point that you had made originally. But, as in the May of 97, something changed things irrevocably, as the things that bring you joy betray you criminally and casually, and the tears of wild triumph after three terms end so bitterly, so the personal, political can be pretty shitty similarly. About three years ago or so, he had a routine bit of surgery, but something wasn't right, and then a phone call came nocturnally and unshadowed neon darkness. You just sit there with the family and wait 97 hours for the news you hope will set you free. Sometimes, when I tell them this, the people ask concernedly, does not their failure to cause you to seek retribution legally to those who seek to calculate a human cost statistically? I say the numbers tell you nothing. The whole thing is just a lottery. And then, at 0697, there, the clock, it runs nonsensically. They took him to the place where they would care for him intensively, and there I gripped some hands and hugged some necks and just stared pensively as 97 sides got drowned in cheap and cheerful cups of tea. Then comes the tide of wandering. It ebbs and flows like lunacy, a swelling, now receding thing that's messing with me mentally. His BPM's gone sky high, his blood pressure's dropping dangerously. He speaks in a lost tongue about the things only the dying see. Comes around for a while, he's a trauma-scarred non-entity. He's visited by everyone and everyone just looks and flees. He doesn't know their faces, doesn't even know my mum or me. My brother holds cold hands and says he'll take what he can get, not me. So, so there's 97 weeks of this foul razor's edge uncertainty and then the bastard goes and dies, well, finally and bodily, because though I'll say it here, I still won't share it with the family as far as I'm concerned. He went when he first lost his memory. Then 97 people stand and murmur helpful pleasantries as eldest son, I am the one to deliver the eulogy and almost without thinking, well... The words, they come right readily. We send him where he's going, with his music and with dignity. Then Richard Jones, he rings me up, commissioning some poetry. He's a great big ginger love god known to cogitate tangentially. He wants poems on prime numbers and, well, might as well be cheese or trees because at that moment, all that I can write about is this 
see? So 67 would have done the year they promised matrimonially, or even 89, the year I went my own way psychically, but 97 is what I've got. It doesn't mean a lot to me except for fucking Tony Blair. I speak his name, but grudgingly. But one man lit a spark and helped me find my singularity. So if you've suffered through this piece in A, 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 rhyme scheme agony, <laughs> and you're looking for its beating heart, that indivisibility, it's dad, this one's for you, because I miss you fucking horribly. Next up, we have Keith. Jarrett, who is doing the first of two performances that you'll hear from him today. You can find Keith at Keith J London on Twitter and you can find him at Keith J Poetry on Facebook. I don't know how many of you have been, this This is really tragic, I don't know how many of you have ever been um, on, on a gay dating, dating uh, website or app or something along those lines. Um, if you haven't, then Great. This this might be a bit of an education. Um, if you have, then this, this is probably your profile. Um, <laughs> in which case, apologies for breach of copyright. <laughs> no time wasters. No fats. No femmes. And no offence, I have black friends, but sexually they do nothing for me. Just the way it is. I'm not racially prejudiced, but no Asians either. No one under eight inches. No size queens, please. No pic collectors. No one who isn't interested in sending at least 10 pictures. But no dicks. No assholes. No time wasters. No one-line messages. No stupid questions like, what are you into? Read my list. No queens, no queers, no twinks, no bears, no gym bunnies, no baggage. No strings to tie them down with. No kinks. No whips. No kissing. Definitely no kissing, no bad breath, bad hygiene, bad attitude, no rude people. I'm not afraid to tell you where to get off. No under 21s, no over 25s, no lying about your age, no lying about your weight. You are a big fat liar. Yes, you know who you are. I've blocked you already. No ping pong emails, no replies to hi. Say something interesting, no average. I don't do average, no marriage proposals from Nigeria, no inferior people, no total subs, no total tops, no verse, make up your mind. And even worse if you say you're one thing and turn out to be the other. No undercover closet cases, no couples, no attached, no mismatching eyebrows, no piercings, no tats, no one who hasn't seen a razor in the last week. No one who hasn't seen the inside of a gym in the last day. No one too thin, too short, too dim. No one who can't hold a decent conversation. No one who talks too much. This is a cruising site. No low lives. No unrealistically high expectations. I'm not a model. I'm not an oil painting. And I'm not an unreasonable boy. In fact, I'm not a boy at all, especially spelt with an I. Why? Oh, yeah. No other chavvy greetings like what's up or hey, mister. My list could go on, but I don't want to sound picky. And if you've taken the trouble to read this far, then well done for being one of the very few literate people on here. This site has been going downhill for years. I don't even know why I'm bothering. You're probably just a time waster anyway. So, yeah, I, I was um, kind of writing this rant... Um, earlier this week um, and, and we've decided it's, it's not a rant but what was it? a, a, it's a, a routine this is a routine <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
After I've protested outside embassies, after I've brought badges and signed petitions and wondered whether my details will land in guilty hands, after I've been elbow bumped by bulky banners and bellowed out mantras, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you, and after I've read and seen red and been ambiguous, after I've drained myself of pride and piss in a discreet corner over a drain, and after I've been that drain, and after I've refilled at the pub, and after I've spilled my stories on festival stages, and after I've once again pulled my tongue from out of the custody of its thirsty mouth, and after I have drunk, and after I've been promised living water and hellfire by the same preachers, and shame on you has become my personal mantra, praying on my lonely, and then, after I thought if Jesus couldn't save me, maybe feminism could, and after I burnt my bra quietly with my chest still inside, and after the smoke inhalation, and after I've singed everything, and I can no longer pull myself out by my short and curlies, and I can no longer pull myself out of the protest or pull myself out of the bed, and after, and after, and after R. Kelly, and believing I can fly and learning I fucking well can't, and after believing in myself when I could no longer believe in truth, and then believing in the divination of tongues locked against each other during one night stands and after breaking my bed during an adventurous headstand and after trying unsuccessfully to watch Breaking Bad and then breaking bread in restaurants with old university friends where the only flowing conversation is do you remember the time you vomited all over my room and after vomiting in that room and promising never to drink again and after drinking again and not vomiting and after vomiting again but not from drinking and after returning to the same broken bed and after the second coming where all religious references are erased and after downplaying all cultural context and negating all the adverse effects of history to justify genocide and after I've been muttering history keeps repeating, history keeps repeating until my tongue is dry and after I've drunk again and after I've become a full-blown slacktivist and avoided the protest because I have no voice left to shout with. And consequently, after I've buried my tongue somewhere else instead, and after I absent-mindedly wrote you a poem, and after I burnt that poem and felt the hairs on my chest singe one more time, and after shame on you has worked its one-size-fits-all magic, I've forgotten how to roll back the progress of time and release the pressure on my head, which is always so angry, always gets rubbed up the wrong way by the well-meaning like a tight foreskin in virgin hands. After I've bartered some of my anger for vulgarity and some of my sadness for sarcasm and I still feel shortchanged and after I mean before I mean during and enduring the weight of a double-decker bus on my eyelids every single time I leave my home and before the violence and before the violins start playing and before the drumbeat begins to really kick in and before the euphoric crowd high on ketamine MDMA methadrone alcohol and life jump up in unison with one hand in the air and before my cry is drowned out by the stomp I just wanted to say never look down that's it Um, cheers. I think I've got time for uh, one more. Sorry. Um, so yeah, this one I won't introduce. Uh, just ten ways to avoid hearing him say sorry. One, change the subject. The weather is plentiful. The rain is problematic. The third stair still snitches on you, even ten years later when you try to creep upwards unnoticed. Two, this close up, your dad's head is like the large Dutch pot above the kitchen cupboard. Leave that to stew for a few minutes. 
Three, in Latin American Spanish, ahorita is an imprecise way of saying not quite now. Feel your tongue curl up on the R. Flick it out like a Swiss knife. Cuatro, no entiendo inglés. Five, use find and replace to destroy the word or press backspace till your PC beeps a void. Six, beat him to it. I'm sorry for those unanswered texts. I'm sorry for ever being 15 years old. I'm sorry for taking the knife out the house. It wasn't like that. I promise. Seven, sorry isn't the hardest word to say. For me, it's world. And the way it worlds empty in my mouth. If you're, say, Yonosuke, the Japanese student I taught, scrawl will sound like a mess of consonants surrounding one lonely vowel. It is one of many things you cannot vocalize. Eight, the search engine told me that in Japanese, I'm sorry is pronounced suminasen. Nine, lo siento. Ten. I'm sitting on the third stair of our conversation in a house I lost the keys to many years ago, sifting through letters that still come in my name, and I want to be able to look you in the eyes and tell you it's okay. Thank you. Next up, we've got some poems from Louise Pazakali. You can find her at Louise the Poet on Twitter, and she's louisethepoet.co uk on the world wide web and this is the first performance she did with us at stand up tragedy the first day of our first trip to edinburgh and this is the first of two times that you'll hear her voice in today's episode so there's another first and here's louise hi i'm louise i'm a poet from the north of england you can stop laughing now <laughs> Here comes the sad poetry. Okay, um, this first poem's a little bit about my teenage years and a little bit about the girl next door, just to set the scene. The girl next door, she's no mum, uh, and her dad, he's a postman by day and a bouncer by night, like Mr. Domestic Violence, I call him. Um, last weekend, no word of a lie, um, he's shouting, admit it, admit it, admit it. Next thing I know, his girlfriend's on the street, no clothes on. I'm like rifling through my wardrobe. What can I get that would fit her? But, you know, in case she leaves him, you know, I don't need back. Um, next thing we know, the door slams. Two old boots, a t-shirt and a bra, but no knickers for her. So she puts them on and then sleeps in the car. Anyway, so this, this poem is about, it's about girl next door. Girl next door. That baby next door, she is boozing like a badass. That baby next door, she's all orange, back comb, eyelash. She is vodka, it's her bottle, but I've seen her suck her thumb. It's a funny sort of milkshake, but the boys still come. That baby next door, she is flicking sig stumps in me garden. And the boys are buzzing round, they're all revving rips and add-ons. That baby next door sees a lot of ultraviolence. And I don't know if it's better when she's wailing or she's silent. But the nights are getting lighter, and I hope it's going to be a summer of picking daisies for her, not a daisy chain summer. Because she loves him, she loves him not. She loves him, she loves him not. She loves him, 
She loves him not. She loves him. She loves him. She loves him. She loves him not at 14 years old, at 14 years fraught. Half sherbet inside, blown alive, blossomed on school fields, parks, battered cars. She slaps roaming hands and wears wonder bras. Jailbait, really. Sugar-coated to his 18 years big. Oh, what big tawny eyes he has to see in her. Little old, little told, little souls her. A woman, a lover, a mother, his wife, his council castle princess, his job seekers, distraction. They sit, talk, pick, petals till the daisies of summer are done and the sun spell dandelions turn winter white and wise <sighs> old heads on young stems predictable she loves him not he's once upon a next week deadbeat make some money on a bit of weed liam you smoked all the profits this prince charming wasn't the one she sighs about what a big girl she's become. And she goes to boxing to meet boys. And she goes to boxing for the noise. And she's boxing for the boys, boxing for the noise, boxing for the come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. One, two, one, two, keep your chin down and you'll be the hardest girl round town. And she even gives up smoking so she's got some money to train. And she even runs to school because she's got boxing on the brain. One, two, one, two, keep your chin down and you'll be the hardest girl round town. But to fight or not to fight, that is the question whether it's nobler to suffer the slings and sparrows pecking at your head and that crow is getting bolder she should back off like i told her outrageous lady fortune lady luck which way should she go because she's stuck between a bus stop and a hard place she don't want a criminal record but she's got to show a hard face and she just wants to feel safe she just wants to feel safe. Thank you. Very, very quickly, one short poem about my neighbour. She's a baghead. Um, she's down the street, and one day she knocked on my door. This is called Bird Street, the street I live on. Knock, knock, knock. There's a beggar at the door. There's a baghead at the door. There's a fallen angel. There's a woman. There's a whore, St. Murray of Methadone, knocking to come in, child-sized, pin thighs, questioning me with lucid eyes, her. Does anyone keep pigeons on this street? Me. Jesus Christ, why do I always attract the freaks? Her. I found this pigeon, it's struggling to breathe. Me. Pigeons are dirty, they carry disease. There's a rat with wings, there's a rat with wings. There's a fallen angel, there's a struggling thing. No vet for a pigeon, no RSPCA. And God knows who will help this smackhead today. Me. Uh, well, I don't keep pigeons, but she shoves a dying hope 
in a plastic bag through the crack in the door, through the crack of, in the chance of my pause for thought. And I'm no omnipotent ornithologist. Is it a pigeon or is it a dove? Me, revulsion, her, love, her. I'll knock on another door, missus. Dirty, blonde, feathers, racing heart, last slack, breath. No last rites for a pigeon. A paper sign in Murray's window. House to let, will accept DSS and pets. Fumigators in and vermins out. And my house stinks of death and faith and doubt. Thank you. Next up, here is James Mackay doing some of his own poems. So often we've had James on at Stand Up Tragedy performing other people's words. He's brought to us the tragedy of the Bible, the tragedy of Victorian stories, the, the tragedy of various different things from antiquity and here he is doing some of his own tragedy some of his own words and you can find james online at www.mackaypoetry.com and he's on twitter at quiet circus a lot of tragic things to choose from going on at the moment uh, genocide attempted genocide war zones and all that kind of thing the real tragedy though the thing that weighs on my mind is that i'm never going to be 27 again here's a poem about that it's an historical epic in blank verse yeah de -dum, de -dum, de -dum, de -dum, de -dum. you've got it uh, uh just a couple of health warnings it does have language in it uh sorry about that uh, and also, it does mention Jimmy Savile, which is turning out to be much worse than saying fuck or cunt on stage. It turns out it's absolute death for a poem that has got Jimmy Savile in it, but it's not about that. Okay, it's not about that. It's about me being 27 and lots of other things. The first time I saw Jimmy Savile, wait. The last time I saw Jimmy Savile, hang on, the only time I ever saw Jimmy Savile, it was the morning of the day the sky fell in. And he was running, quarry-like, hard on his trail, the first of the shambolic hordes that fell on Round Hay Park that day. From concrete towers and blank estates, from towns that sleep their rusty post-industrial sleep beside the grey-green hills, forgotten rivers, silent factories and silver seas, their hollow faces burning, ecstasy for breakfast on a weekend like no other, they gathered in their thousands. Friends, this was... The Radio One Love Parade in Leeds, AD 2000. Jimmy fucking Savile, arms outstretched in wonder. Smiles from childhood, smiled again round speed-fucked teeth. And no way past the stumbling embrace and protestations of I love you, man. A garish rabbit in the headlights of the juggernaut. He started 40 years before to get his hands up teenage skirts. Bewildered and confused, he turned and fled. But he was not the only one to get it wrong that day. The Metropolitans, who planned this thing to hit their regional programming targets, bringing urban chic to the benighted provinces, were not to know that in those days, flights to Berlin were cheaper than the train to London, weren't to know how empty cities sang from north to north, machines of loving grace beneath brick arches, concrete under derelict skies, were not to know that what they thought of as fashion was here 
a broad church with a congregation barely dreamed of in their Soho bar philosophies. In short, they planned for 30,000 and 300,000 came. The phones went first, not that we'd had them long, but long enough to wander off from friends, saving the knowledge they'd be findable again. They weren't. The soft rain hardened. On the grassy banks, we strained to hear the music. The massed and jostling regiments besieged the stage, desperate to drown in waves of bass, but only trickles made it through the press of flesh and barely moistened. Anyone with anything to drop dropped like a stone. Whole legions of the disconnected lay in piled heaps. Others milled around like zombies. And, and all a thousand various shades of brown and pink and grey twatted, bollocked monkeys cavorted angrily around. And now the light came down like something out of Shakespeare. I know a bank where the wild thyme grows, where ox slips and the nodding violet blows, quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine, I fucking swear I had no drugs that day. Somewhere beyond the Yorkshire cloud, the sun machine was coming down. Against all odds, one scattered tribe regathered, falling back to where a pasty cellar smuggled in unsanctioned decks behind his van. And there and then we danced. Bodies of noise, bodies of zero dissatisfaction, driving our feet up to the ankles in mud and our heads full under the Aphex twin. And basically, the body is articulated meat. I know I've used that line before. I know also that repetition isn't far off revolution and we all know just how many of those there are per fucking minute. Retreating, the horde flooded the station road with knots of barely sentient carnage. Humanity like lichen lounged and spaced and Mitsubishi'd everything before them. Days elapsed before the wards of hospitals for miles around were clear. Glass sharply carpeted the grassy banks for weeks. The sky came down. Our shoulders and our shoes got slowly damp, and we just let it happen. Shimmer turned to afterglow, and ebb and flow, and beautiful and lost always. Hey, thank you very much. That's here. Uh, and just one second one. Uh, if you want a real tale of tragedy and woe, you find a poet and you ask them about money. It's, it's a full-time job that you have to have another full-time job in order to keep yourself in your first full-time job, and you end up doing all sorts of bizarre things with your life. Uh, and this is a poem that I wrote quite a long time ago, in fact, when I was 27, uh, about a particular job that I had uh, one summer to support myself through the poeting. It's called Experience Not Essential. The ad read short and sweet. Omnipotent creator type wanted for fucked up world. And to be honest, I needed the money. You know how it is, what were the price of everything? The hours seemed daunting, but they explained at the agency that freedom from the constraints of space and time was a standard clause in the contract. The job's sole flaw in their eyes was the relative lack of openings for further advancement. I said, look, I have no ambition. I just want to pay the rent. And they said that was just the kind of answer they were after. Though looking back on it, they must have been desperate, the post having been so long unfilled following the shock resignation of the previous employee. But I signed and went home dreaming 
extra bonus weekends in the middle of the week. Atomic bombs that do no harm and have a graceful fallout of pink butterflies. Go back and stop the Inquisition before a single heretic gets even slightly singed. I toyed with plans for a garden filled with every kind of dancing flower and foliage to sing a peaceful shade of music in one long Mediterranean evening for you and I, my love, to sit together through eternity, though it doesn't take an all-knowing deity to figure out that still you wouldn't want to sleep with me. I don't remember much about the job, too much having to be everywhere in the universe at once, and people dying painfully all the time and not even being allowed to wax wrathful on the bad ones, it being out of line with the culture of mercy initiative they've been trying to introduce. I left the only way I could, by wiping every bit of consciousness that wasn't just plain, simple, armchair beatnik, something poet, lover of rain on city pavements and the company of fellow 21st century type degenerates. One last thing, before I walked, I whacked up the brightness, the color, and the volume on whichever portion of reality I might happen to inhabit for the amusement of my friends and the irritation of my enemies. So far, it seems to be working. I feel bad sometimes about leaving them shorthanded, but uh, no one lasts too long, they tell me. Not in that line of work. Thank you. I've been James McKay. Bring on the tragedy. James McKay, everybody! So next up, we have Louise Fazakali, take two. Here she is, joining us for our second year in Edinburgh. Um, okay, so I'm a poet, I'll do some poems. Um, this first one is um, about a guy down our street who was uh, an ex-Marine. Microscope. No curtains in his window, no internal doors, an out-of-tune piano on bare floor boards. This winter, wasps swarmed in our street like a sneeze against the skyline, magnified, black, buzz, 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 buzzing, a tornado in his chimney stack. The council come to help him out. He barricades the door, nips out the back, down the backs, round the corner to the corner shop. He's got a bee in his bonnet, full of loose chains and foreign coins. He's five p short of the full amount. He walks back up our street. His carrier bag full of boxes shaped like packs of pills to cure his pneumonia. What have you got there? A neighbour asks. Forty boxes of toothpaste, he replies. One for every year. I'll use it to fill the holes to keep the wasps out. Past Halloween, but there's still bats in his belfry. Past Christmas now, though the Christmas decks have been up all year, half man, half beard. He's got eyes of mercury, drawings stuck to the window pane. Outside art, insane. Insane just like the Turner Prize. Insane just like an artist's eyes. No curtains in the window but there's a rug up on the floor and old lad up the street has given him a teller and showed him how to hang a door. Mr. Wasp pays him back in weeding, or maybe weed, but the piano's sounding more in tune. He's playing 
pulls us out onto the street. We talk from front doors for five minutes. Smiles are contagious. Technology retreats. Through my double glazing and a hush of carpets, I hear a call. Today is in jeans and jacket and bare feet gripping the street. Have you got a tin, mate? A neighbour gets one from the back kitchen, then onto next door, but one rat-a-tat-tat. Check me out in my new hat. He's wearing a silver plastic robot helmet. It hides his face and his head. Some neighbours like meerkats having a peep. Some neighbours like monkeys screech. All excited now, what's he gonna do next? This cuckoo in our nest. He was sectioned on the ward. He's not sectioned on this street. Someone calls the PCSO, who is kind. Someone rings his sister. And the kids call him Mr. Wasp and I admire his dress sense. And he speaks sense when he's not lost in the buzz and the nonsense. It's not exactly contagious. He's got a bee in his bonnet. It's not exactly contagious. He's got bats and his belfry. And we all get stung from time to time with wasps, wasps in our chimney breasts, and we ward ourselves against bad thoughts with family or friends or strangers and helpers and walking or making or painting and talking. More talking, please. More making, please. Because every winter, summer string in every street, wasps swarm like a sneeze. kind of think, uh, where's the tragedy in that really? It's got a bit of a happy ending, but it's, it's where's truth and, wh and where's fiction? I would give it a happy ending for a happy show that I had to write for. So, I mean, I think the truth is that no one showed him out to Angador and I don't think people do talk to him. So that's something that, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, the, the original version of that poem was much sadder. Um, I write a lot of stuff with a military theme because um, my ex um, was a soldier and I'm writing a show called Love is a Battlefield. Um, I've got a little commission for Radio Free, which is exciting. Um, so I, ooh, I know, Radio Free. Um, so um, I thought I'd do two poems um, part of that show. Um, so um, this first one is Daddy's Boat. Daddy's Boat. She made you a little boat with a margarine to bottom and an orange paper sale. I can't fold that into a British Forces post office email. You missed her first day at school. You missed his nativity play. Six months tour. Your theatre is war. You ring insecure on an unsecure line. I witter on house, kids, work, omitting drinks with a male friend, paranoid thoughts another insurgent. Your letters bleed a sleepless hell of gunshot wounds and hobbled little boys. Patch them up and send them on to guns, not toys. And I can't think straight about the things you're learning while she is learning. What you're destroying while he is creating. I'm almost hating you, the army and this world. 
shake myself and get a grip. There must be more to life than this. With a bright idea and a bit of hope. I take this childish, fragile boat. Get a shoebox to send to Afghanistan, tissue paper crumpled in. I can't let you sink. I need you to swim. So put all your death long days and your loneliness and all the scurry stuff into this boat she made for you. The love should stop it seeping through. Oh, somebody stop this happening to us. Somebody stop this happening to me. When you come home, we'll launch that boat and you and I will be free. when someone's away like that and you look at pictures and um, one, of, one of the pictures I looked at was a picture of um, his passing out parade so you know when you first become your soldier and all your family gets to see you pass out um, so I wrote this um, passing out parade 1998 if this were a wedding picture you'd be marrying your dad centre stage his her like a yard brush his tash like a prison officer's chief bridesmaid your poor mam, the awkward angles of her crap blue suit. I see you managed to get your brother out of the pub, right wing. Your sister is meek, beautiful and mute. Downstage left, Barbie stands, instead of me. Big jugged and bright, she's on her way out, the great escape. And you are too narrow, peak cap jammed on. I can't see your eyes. I don't know you yet. Your backward family all face forward and no one touches. Peg dolls, a lot of you. Yet another one-sided conversation. Yeah. Um, I'd like to finish with um, going from the like tragedies like war to the little tragedies. Um, this is too stuck together that I call late for life um, for when you've not spoke up when someone said something homophobic or racist for when you're sick of working in your shit office um, stuck unsaid I think I've bitten my tongue too many times you see I've stopped it dead and left things stuck unsaid so many stupid tired times that now it seems to be coming away at the seams and reams of words are flailing, raving at the misplaced connection where sentences trail off, get mixed up, lost in some severed space in a place where conversations directed all wrong. And before I know what's going on, I'm sat mute in a taxi, the driver leaning in, insatiable, spitting at me words like asylum seeker, wife beaters, women drivers, forged fibers. I take a breath to gather my thoughts. I'll show him. Only I'm wretching. Nothing comes out. Because in this glut of shameful, swollen silences, I've swallowed, swallowed, swallowed that stunted tongue. And then I'm jumping out of the taxi and I'm running for the train. This is the commuters. Bodies clot, clot, clotted together, legs knotted, faces blotched and blotted. We commute, stood up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Pulses, pulse, sweat, 
glands seep leg all men and were, were barbies office chic were office sheep and I'm just a mouse on a wheel strapped for cash so I've strapped on the blinkers become a company thinker I've stopped the drastic rewire I've stopped dreaming big dreams now I just tinker I'm part of the team tap 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 fingers do the walking tap 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 headset mindset does the talking this plastic cell corrupts with stealth Commuter, computer, commuter, computer, commuter, computer. We begin to hate the rain, and I love the rain. Tap, 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 it pours on my window, and out I rush to stand with the smokers. Face upwards, gleeful, my cheeks are wet, my cold hands wings, and yes, these are a few of my favourite things. Colleagues, don't straight jacket me back inside. Don't make me sing your company song. I'm not a commuter. I don't belong. And then we're going to finish off with two performances from our Tragic Friends show that we held when we came back from Edinburgh in September 2014. Uh, and at that show, we gathered together some of our favourite performers who joined us in Edinburgh and made such a brilliant experience in Edinburgh. And we kind of got them back together for a reunion and to bring what we'd done up in Edinburgh back down to London. So this is how we basically finished up our night. I mean, these two performances that you're going to hear were the last two performances before I came on stage and sang a song about platform game characters and that's how we ended up the night but this is close to the end of the night and it's Adele Hampton followed by Keith Jarrett you can find her at www.adelhampton.com put your hands together for Adele Hampton hi so yeah the cool thing about this night tragedy um stand-up tragedy is that we don't really have this in the states Basically, our version is every single open mic and every single slam that is put on because people think that it's just an opportunity to like re-traumatize our audiences. And so that's all we talk about are our problems. So it's really great that you guys have like a dedicated, you know what you're going to get. You're just going to be sad. And that's great because all I have are sad poems. So here we go. <laughs> I wish I could say baby like my grandmother. Thick thighs in front of the oven, pies the result of working arms I learned how to cook, sitting on her lap. See, my grandmother's soul traveled where her battered knees couldn't take her, into the freezer, up over stovetop burners, into frying pans and pots she could make water boil without using her legs, so now, the only way I know how to make mashed potatoes and string beans is resting on my backside. Good food meant I wasn't allowed to leave the table until everything was gone. This is how I learned to clean my plate. Liz Hampton smelled like cheap lavender. Not the kind found in pretty bottles and boutique windows meant for the wives of rich husbands. Nah, hers came unmarked, thick and pungent, a heavy lotion in a short round off purple colored case with a screwed lid so tight you needed the Lord's hands to loosen the lid. I wonder if my father ever found those 
boxes hidden and a clear box hidden underneath her bed, poised for a use that never came one Sunday morning, cluttered with cerulean clips to hide the bald patches and broken pieces of hot combs, the smell of burning still wafting fresh on their teeth, the screams, squirms, and calls upon Jesus to make the pain stop. This is how I learned how to be beautiful. Some people say, That home is where you lay your hat. But with Miss Liz, it seemed more often than not that hearts should be placed on heads instead because, see, my grandmother's home thumped alongside the beat of God's drum, low and soulful. Her chest pumped holy work songs to rhythm footsteps as the Almighty pulled trains along tracks to the promised land. This is how I learned to pray at times. I find myself scanning my reflection for the traits strangers say we share, but it never seemed as if her teeth smiled back. So instead, I peek beneath my lungs. Diaphragm rising, I find her there, bearing the weight of my inhale. She promises to never hold my breath and says, go on and speak, child. We have come too far to be quiet. This is how I learned to be loud. Fifth grade is apparently too young to go to funerals, so I never got to see the church roof sway as they lowered her in the ground. And sometimes I sing amazing grace in the shower so I could pretend like I held hands with blood and faith family as we opened our throats to saline tributes. I don't have the money for brown sugar or sweet potatoes. And Sunday mornings I'm now reserved for lazy limbs and farmers markets. But when I walk past lavender bushels, I see project housing and a motorized wheelchair. I see arms that are strong enough to hold up babies and Bibles, but thick legs, too weak to walk into kitchens. I see cooking lessons and a righteous jawline. Thank you. Um, so, as, as Dave mentioned, um, my girlfriend, I guess fiancé, fiancé is a weird word. Um, it sounds like really pretentious, like I'm my fiance. Um, no, well, what sucks about it is that we were long distance for like two years and it was horrible. Um, but it was great because we made it, so yay. But um, I think the most, one of the most tragic things is like being away from somebody you love for a very long time and being very far away from that person. Um, five hour time differences are a bitch. Um, so yeah, I wrote this when I was sad. I used to be hollow. I used to float alone. I felt okay to let myself drift beneath the waves. My mother says that the best way to surf is always with the body. You're parallel to the role of the water, the makeup of the human form being your only way to keep breathing. But I don't hover solitary anymore. Or at least that's how it used to be when we're together. You know, we ride the crash of the water, survive together with salt stick tuck stuck to our teeth. We cling like rock barnacle to each other when the tide rises high, baby. We are bioluminescent, the light created by an oxygenated chemical reaction within organisms. We are the product of our intertwined breath. My love says she wants to live by the sea one day. 
Says she likes to walk beside it in the early morning while I am still sleeping. She says it calms her. The slow drift sway of the water sings sweet tones to the churning of nightmares that keep her restless. But I can't walk beside her these days. I'm stuck behind the gray water walls separated by that great unbridled thing and it hurts. It feels like my bones are breaking. The marrow giving up its strength to fill what used to be unoccupied she is ripped out of me like a scream wails out from the throat raw and resolute she is torn from me and I, I can't touch the soft bits anymore. I can't reach the nape of her neck to revel in. I miss the rose petal mouth and deep tongue she is every bit spectacular now taken from me. And I don't know how to cope with the missing. Thank you. And um, to close it out, um, the other thing that sucks balls about being long distance is that there's no sex, um, (laughs) which is horrible. So here's a poem about that. Okay, fuck it. Um, There's something sexy to be said about heat lightning when your body hasn't touched foreign skin for months. Like two Girl Scouts that are rubbing sticks against stone trying to create holy flame like our bodies depend on it so we don't get eaten by bears or caught by our troop leader. Perspiration, it slips down legs with enough friction to set the sky on fire. Y'all, it was one of those nights you thought the world was gonna end as you try to sleep naked above the sheets and the only time I have ever thanked God for a lack of air conditioning. You know we say sweat when we talk about sex. But no one ever mentions the salt, and maybe it's because salt crystals don't taste as sweet as sugar cubes. Baby, believe me, when they come from the body, there is nothing more satisfying. And trust me twice when I say, I want to feel your iodine on my taste buds. Butterflies are too drastic for this thumping inside my bones. So I try and say, settle down to the grasshoppers in my stomach. Every time your tongue jumps my skin, I won't be gentle when I pull your hair. I won't be gentle when I press my lips to mouth, muscle, and collarbone. I won't be gentle when I claw your back with teeth-bitten nails because I'm trying to etch my fingerprints onto the only thing I have had control over in months. We were never meant to withstand this kind of heart-sick and fucking is now the only way we know how to remind ourselves that my heart once fit in your heart, regardless of the fact that we had nothing else in common. So that's why when you asked me to come into your apartment, I went so far as the bedroom, avoiding eye contact with your picture frames. I didn't linger long enough to notice that the scent on your pillow matched the taste of tar, carbon monoxide, and bad decisions on your tongue. I know that I am no permanent fixture here, that I hold no stock in your heart and Fuck, I don't pretend to know shit about economics either, but I can tell you that salt lines, like money, don't stretch as far as they used to, so I'll take these sheets for now and I'll walk away with your skin cells, so clench me, woman, with knuckles strong enough to grasp whole bodies. I am rock solid, and I'm ready for your palms, so just take me. 
Thank you. Adele Hampton, everybody! And it proves that she actually did open us all up. I felt quite opened up there. Um, right. Ooh. Right, well, <laughs> our next performer, uh, he is another amazing spoken word uh, performer. Uh, he, he, this is all I need. This, this man is all I need. Uh, wow, my intros are very strange today. Uh, so... <laughs> Yes, the only man I need, everybody. You can find him at zone126.blogspot.co.uk. He's Keith J on Facebook. Put your hands together for Keith Jarrett! Wow. What an introduction. Um, yeah, um, yeah. The tragic thing is... Um, I've got one of them names. It's a famous name. And, um, and uh, I've been added on Facebook, um, which is why I changed it to Keith J, because I've had too many people add me on Facebook and say, oh, you're black. And I, I, the, the first time that happened, I thought, that's a bit of an odd thing to say. Then I realised that um, actually there's a famous jazz pianist called Keith Jarrett. And um, some curious minds will, will think that I'm, I'm probably named after um, Keith Jarrett the jazz pianist and I wasn't um, and some people who know my dad but don't know me will think that I was named after my dad and I wasn't this is the true story of how I got my name for my birthday they rescued my name from a bargain bucket in Barking too cheap to afford a new one dog-eared and ragged they wiped it down best they could said I was an old soul anyway I would have been a Lindsay, Russell, Daniel, or a Curtis, but they gave me this one to suckle on, so I chewed, bit, kicked, and rattled it till it tinkled out jazz piano lullabies on my baby's door. I carried it to school on my shoulders. My friends like to call it Jarrett the Parrot, Keith the Chief, and Mellow Man. It was the way its yellow eyes shut on top of class desks. I guess it was because it lacked focus. Older now, it became a pet I couldn't bear to hear barked out on buses. I tried to drown it in the River Thames. It still skulked behind like a bad wind. My name was too dirty, too old, too much like my father. At home, I was LK, Daniel, Junior, D, and anything but my name. But my name got bigger and grew claws, stretched to five foot eight inches tall and became solidly built. It swallowed me up and <coughs> belched proudly, leaving me where I still remain, trapped inside. My name is now writing poetry, last I heard. Tells tall tales about its origins. Far from the land of its adopted parents. Far from the bric-a-brac stalls lining East London streets. It can be found tracing its roots back to some old Celtic village. Where it once meant something. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to leave you with this. Um, which is to any poets that might be remaining here. You've been writing poetry again. I can spot that leaky pen on your lip from miles away and your tongue with the stale taste of metaphor still on which you've tried to brush away. The verses linger still in your kiss. You've been writing poetry again. Don't worry, I can tell. It's that 
fingertips smell that keyboard stain the pinky poised above delete pushing out your veins why this fucking vein obsession lines layered with double meanings and painstakingly revised which you pattern to shape and you stanzadize if words are your food why do you play with them why do you use them as tools to confuse and condense you've been writing that intense poetry again there's a rhyme in your mind and a line in your eyes that i can trace i can see it in your face because there's a rhythm that you're tapping and it's just not mine you've been writing poetry again yeah i know you by now i can hear it in your diction your dirty addiction to watching couplets form your smile as a simile emerges your urges to splurge your emotions onto innocent sheets you've been at it again i lie it's that telltale tick of the head as puns pull up seats on the screen the debris of undeveloped phrases onto pages as you spit feeling into words and shuffle meaning into verse you've been injecting rhythm into those lines you're just a meter away from lunacy and it's pathetic the way you keep dressing things up in imagery and symbolism because let's face it you're only inventing new rhymes and new ways to say the same old things like you're in love or like you're scared like you're angry like you're confused because you don't understand life's rules so you use poetry as a ruse to redraft it into metrical form and it isn't normal it isn't normal at all <laughs> Yes. You've been writing on the walls instead of fighting in wars. Your big gripping hand should be handling concrete grit. You should grit your teeth and grin and bear shit. You should be more functional. You should be more like your brother. You should be less of a dreamer. You should be clean and more productive. So shut down your PC junk. Pack up your dictionaries, close your books, unsquint your eyes and look. Look out at the world. Go on. Brave the cold daylight of the outside without the cloak of illusion without the joke of your delusional imagery without the hope of a simile or metaphor without the seasoning of rhymes to waste your time you should be ashamed of doing the strange things to language that you do while the earth still turns while cities riot and burn you should learn that life isn't a blank page for you to scrawl your doodoo ideas on because there are too many wrongs to right so good night Keith Jarrett everybody someone who I'm glad has been writing poetry again So that's the end of today's tragic poetry we always have some spoken word artists on at stand up tragedy so if you're a fan of spoken word you should definitely check out stand up tragedy both our previous episodes of the podcast and also our future live shows and if you are not a fan of spoken word i should think that by this stage of the podcast you will be i myself was not as familiar with what spoken word could be when i started doing stand up tragedy even though i started out as a poet i started out writing poetry i hadn't really experienced the spoken word scene If you'd like to see some more spoken words some, and you'd like to see a live stand-up tragedy, come along on the 28th of February, Saturday the 28th of February at the Hackney Attic, where we'll have three acts of tragic winter, starting with tragic fairy tales. In the middle, we're going to have tragic climate, which is going to be guest curated by the marvellous Alice Bell. And then we're going to end up the night with an act of tragic death, which is has on the bill Izzy Lawrence and Jack Rook and Amy McAllister so that is going to be an excellent way to end out a night 
You can buy your tickets already, £5 in advance. There'll be £7 on the door. You can get those from the Hackney Attic, which is the Hackney Picture House as well. Either one of those will do you. If you stick it into Google, you'll find the Hackney Attic and you can buy the tickets there. Hope to see you there. You'll hear me again next week for next week's Selected Tragedy. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by me, put together by me, with sound production from Stephen Harvey, with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson, and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and the reactionaries.